Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Tuesday, May 25th, we're studying Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 1 to 20. Jeremiah preaches against the deceptive words of the false prophets, words that offer only false comfort in the temple of the Lord. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us returning guest, Pastor Jason Casper. Pastor Casper serves at Mount Calvary Lutheran Church in LaGrange, Texas. Pastor Casper, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Thanks for having me, sir. Welcome to you, too. It's good to have you here with me in the studios of KFUO, Texas. I, I don't know if that's an official title. But well, we'll claim it for ourselves. Yeah, this is the satellite office of KFUO, Texas. <laughs> Appreciate you making the drive from LaGrange to Smithfield this morning to study Jeremiah chapter 7. As we get started this morning, let's talk a little context what do we need to know about the prophet, his ministry, his book, as we get into these verses for today? Yeah, so the prophet Jeremiah. Uh, it, curious thing. So we, we will talk about prophets, and they'll fit into the category of, of pre-exilic and exilic and post-exilic. And, and Jeremiah is one of the pre-exilic prophets. He's actually going to be right up to the, to the actual edge of the exile, though he himself won't go to Babylon. He's going to end up in Egypt. He's right on to the cusp of what's actually happening, and he sees it. He sees it transpire. Um, his prophecy and his his ministry takes place during the final four kings of the of the southern kingdom of Judah, and so he's already seen, and the people have already seen, or at least heard about, because we're talking you know 150 years displaced. But they've heard of of the destruction of the northern kingdom. Um, these folks should have some sense that maybe there is impending doom waiting for them too. And that's really what Jeremiah is here to say. This is also coming for us. and It's coming real soon. It's coming down the pipe. We are going to see the destruction of the temple. We're going to, do, to see the destruction of the nation, the Southern kingdom of Judah. And so that's really, that's the, the core of his mission. His ministry is to preach against idolatry and unbelief, in the hopes, and this really is, it's easy to lose track of that, in the hopes that the people will relent from their unbelief and their unfaithfulness and turn back to the Lord, and that the Lord will relent in his anger. Because God doesn't want to destroy Judah. He doesn't want to destroy the people. He doesn't want to destroy the temple. But the people are not turning away from their idolatry and their unbelief and their and their horrible practices. And that's really where Jeremiah is. He's He's the... It's, it's worth thinking of him also like that voice in the wilderness, the last cry, turn from your sin. This is really it. We got to stop, folks. You mentioned, you know, that the purpose of Jeremiah's preaching is that he does want the people to repent. The Lord does want the people to repent. And sometimes in the book of Jeremiah, you get the sense that I think the, the guest yesterday, Pastor Himmer, you know, it's almost fatalistic that it seems like there's no hope for the people of Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Jeremiah. And yet, in today's text, we will see that there is this matter, you know, if you stop, if you turn, if you repent, and that is the purpose of Jeremiah's preaching, is this last gasp effort to get the people to return, to come back from their idolatry, to turn to the Lord. Today's text centers around the temple, and this is something that we haven't really 
talked a ton about yet. This is one of the first place that it comes up in the book of Jeremiah, very specifically of what's going on in the temple. In terms of just in, in terms of setting that context again, why is the temple so important for God's Old Testament people, Israel? So the temple is the, the, the recapitulation of the tabernacle, and it is where God promises to be, where he dwells with his people, where the sacrifices are offered, and the sacrifices are this ritual purity thing that ties everyone physically into the promise of salvation in the Messiah that is to come. And that, that is, this is the thing that's going to be missing in the exile. Once the temple is gone, there's no more connection to the physical presence of God and the physical forgiveness of sins in the same way that there was when the temple was existing and when the sacrifices were practiced daily there. So this this existence of the temple, it was so important, in fact, that the northern kingdom even built, builds two of their own temples because they have some sense of a knowledge that they need to have a place, even though they go to the wrong place and do it all in the wrong way. They, they understand that it matters, that it's important to have the place where God dwells. And that's that's the central function of the of the temple. Everything that happens in the nation of Israel, and the nation of Judah, we always talk about going up to Jerusalem. It isn't necessarily the highest point in the land, but it is the up place. It's the high place of the Lord. We always go up to the temple, up to Jerusalem, up to the place of the Lord. And that that is the one thing. It is distinct among the high places in the land. Um, we've been studying it at Mount Calvary in uh, First and Second Kings. And the high places are a big problem for the people of Israel and the people of, of Judah. They They engage in pagan activities at these high places outside. And there is only one high place of the Lord. There is only one mount of the Lord. These other high places are, are the places where bad things happen. Very, very bad things. Right. And Jeremiah certainly talked about that, the bad things that happen at these high places, no doubt. Uh, I, the reason I think this is important is because we don't want to let Jer we don't want to take Jeremiah's words today the wrong way. The temple was a key location for God's people such that if you were to go to a different place to worship, you were wrong. You were supposed to go to this place. But what we're going to see in today's text, and this comes up in other places in Jeremiah as well, is that they were taking a false comfort in that place. To use the, the Latin term that our confessions use, it was an ex opere operata type use. And I'll let you maybe explain what that means. I think you can i'm gonna <laughs> by, put you on the spot with some latin this morning yeah by the, by the doing of the doing the thing that is done which somehow accomplishes something not by by nature of of what god does but by nature of our doing the doing thing in its doing and that's a uh, it, it's it's kind of foolish in the way that we repeat that but that's the way the latin phrase comes out it, it is this 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 deliverance of some some sort of merit by way of the action itself, rather than because the hand of God delivers grace to us in this way, and this is how we receive it. And that's, that is exactly what we're going to get into here in, in Jeremiah, this notion that somehow the temple itself and the activity that happens there is automatically salvific, whether it is in accordance with God's will, will and word or not. Right. Whether or not it's received through faith. I think that's the way the confessions would would speak it, it, you know, in addition to the, the way that we would condemn that Latin phrase of just doing the work. We need to receive it through faith. This is the way it comes to us. And if we don't receive it through faith, then it is just another work that we're doing, attempting to earn God's favor. We've stumbled into works righteousness 
we're, That's we're, what's, we're pretty good at that, aren't we? We sure are. We sure are. And so let's see how Jeremiah preaches today against that sort of thinking, that sort of false comfort. We are in Jeremiah chapter 7, beginning at the first verse. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who entered these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known? And then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Go now to my place that was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. And now, because you have done all these things, declares the Lord, and when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen. And when I called you, you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house that is called by my name and in which you trust and to the place that I gave to you and to your fathers as I did to Shiloh. And I will cast you out of my sight as I cast out all your kinsmen, all the offspring of Ephraim. I think I'll pause there, Pastor Casper. That was through verse 15, this temple sermon, if we want to call it that, that Jeremiah begins to preach in today's text. As we work our way through it, verse one, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, right? This is common throughout Jeremiah. The word of the Lord comes. And particularly in this text, the Lord sends Jeremiah to the place that the the sin is happening, actually sends him to the temple to preach. Yeah, he sends him to stand in the gate of the temple. And that's, and that's a curious thing. It, it, there seems to be some notion that standing in the temple gate is part of this ex opere operato, this doing thing, mm -hmm. that merely standing in this spot, somehow the, well, we'll use the, the pejorative term, the magic of what's going on inside is going to rub off on the people and, and, and get some of that on them. That, that this, it's, it's this, this notion that's, that somehow the work there is, is, is going to do a thing for me, whether I'm, whether I'm in, in faith or not, whether I'm participating rightly or not. Um, it, it, it's very interesting that that's, that that's the way the Lord sends him there immediately to the place where it's going on in the way that it's happening, not even up to the altar or anywhere else. Go to the stand and the, go to the temple gate, go mm. there and begin to speak there and let your voice be heard there. Right. Yeah. Sends him to the place where the sin is happening in the manner that the sin is happening. I, I noticed one of the things I think we shouldn't completely pass by where Jeremiah is sent to those who are going to worship the Lord in both Hebrew and Greek. This word for worship. Well, we hear the word worship and we think what happens in a church and that is worship. But in both Hebrew and Greek, it involves the idea of a posture that we're talking about bowing down before the Lord. And I, I think that 
that use of the word here in Jeremiah at the outset of his sermon is important because of what's going to happen later and what Jeremiah is going to condemn them for, that they think that they can bow down before two things, that they think that they can offer themselves you know, as servants to two gods at once. And I mean, just that figure of bowing down before someone, that kind of puts that that notion to rest that you, you can't really do that, can you? No, and that and that's the ongoing sin of the of the people of the north and of the south that we're going to we're going to turn our face to Jerusalem. We're going to face the one true God, and we're going to and Him only shall we serve, except for Baal, and Him only shall we serve, except for Molech, and Him only shall we serve. But you know these other gods, we'll just sort of keep them in our hip pocket because they're good little talismans for when the rain comes or when the floods happen. We like to be able to rely upon our household gods that we've trusted since our youth. And this, and it's all rolls back to it. It all rolls back to judges. Everyone sir, does what is right in his own eyes. We come into the land of Canaan to conquest Canaan and to conquest Canaan. Nice way to turn that phrase to make conquest of Canaan. <laughs> and in doing so, we don't actually eliminate the Canaanites and purge them from the land. Mm-hmm. And okay, well, you know, at least we'll stick with the Lord's word and we won't, marry their daughters to our sons and our, and our daughters to their sons, except that we do that. But at least we won't bring their gods into our household. Oh, we did that too. And, and then that becomes the continual problem for Israel going forward. They always suffer with this attraction to the Canaanite gods and the, the inability to discern that there is the one true God and him only should you serve. And you can't actually keep the other gods around and keep and keep them in service. You can't go to the high places. You can't enjoy the temple prostitutes because that, that opposes faithfulness to the Lord. Mm. Well, and of course the problem of idolatry goes back farther than that, all, all the way to the, the garden, of course, where the idol becomes myself that I want to determine right and wrong. And you can think throughout the history of the people of God, how idolatry is the problem. Even I remember uh, as you were saying, household gods, you know, this is something that the patriarchs struggled with. They had their Abraham and Sarah. That's right. Rebecca and all of them. And, And then of course, you know, the golden calf, right as they come out of the wilderness over and over again, idolatry is the problem. And it continues to be the problem for the people of Judah and Jerusalem in Jeremiah's day. And perhaps what is more deceptive in this case is that the temple of the Lord is there. Now, verse three, the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel tells the people, amend your ways and your deeds. I will let you dwell in this place. There's a bit of that hope of repentance. It seems, you know, there, the Lord's not simply saying, I know you're not going to do this, but do this, repent. This is what it looks like. And then he says, don't trust in these deceptive words. And the deceptive words, this is where you get the sermon of the false preachers. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Now, we've kind of touched on this already with that Latin term, just doing the work. What's, what is this false sermon, these deceptive words? Why is it deceptive to say this is the temple of the Lord? It, it is. It's curious because it's this sort of repetitive phrase that comes up and it, it it almost, this is a little bit like what happens with the Ark of the Covenant, too. It becomes an, an idol to itself. The existence of the temple, and remember now the, the temples in Dan and Bethel have been destroyed, and so this is for the, for the people of the remaining people of, of Judah, there is no other temple. This is clearly the only one, so this has to be the right place. And, he, and, it, and it's almost as if 
anything we do here is is cool, provided that we do it in the temple of the Lord. Even if we bring Baal in, which has happened, even if we bring the Moleks and the other gods into the Lord's temple, this is this is the temple of the Lord. We can do this stuff because it's here. This is where this is where God's blessings are. And then there's also an idea that, like the pagan deities, that that God can be contained here. And so if we're faithful to God in this place, we can be unfaithful outside. And that's also a false teaching that's being brought in by the false teachers and the false preachers. This is the temple of the Lord as if that mantra somehow protects us and makes everything here good and makes the stuff we do outside okay. This makes this is really where the faith happens and nowhere else. It doesn't happen outside of these doors. We don't have to be Jews and faithful well, Old Testament Christians anywhere other than here inside the temple of the Lord. So, I mean, maybe this is a way of of thinking about it. When we talk about the sacraments today, we talk about God's word being joined to a visible element. So, for example, in baptism, the water is joined to God's word. And so it does all these wonderful things. It gives life, salvation, forgiveness. But if we just have the water... And we don't have God's word. All we have is is water. It is only plain water. That's right. It's just plain water. Doesn't do anything other than the things that water normally does. Like flood out Texas for. That's instance. right. That's right. So it's it seems like the people of Judah and Jerusalem are treating the temple apart from God's word. It's it's as if they they love the building. They think that's great, and they want to find confidence in the building, but they have no use for the word of God that has been attached to the building. Well, we can we can draw a great parallel to that in our modern expression of Christianity. We have things in modern Christianity that we can point to and say that looks and sounds sort of Christian ish, hmm. but it exists apart from the word of God and apart from Jesus explicitly stated. And it has the it has the trappings and the and the appearance of Christianity, but it kind of isn't. Because it, it just it, it is just a thing that looks like it. It's the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. It's just this this ongoing mantra of stuff that looks moral and righteous, but doesn't actually have Jesus present forgiving sins and, and delivering people from that into salvation. And that is that's kind of the picture that I get in my mind of this temple of the Lord stuff. In addition to all the idolatry, that separation from the word of the God, just enjoying the, the, the presence in Solomon's temple. Oh, this place is so glorious and so great, even though it fell under great disrepair. But we won't get into that there. There is just such grandeur there and such such Jewish ishness kind of. And and yet it's not the word of the Lord that's what that's there with them. Right. They it's, I mean, I think that the attitude that they have is look at that building it's there. And so we're good. No matter what may happen to us, no matter what we may do, regardless of what God actually says, as long as that building stands there, then all these, and I mean, this is where Jeremiah will go later. All these judgments that you say are coming, Jeremiah, that can't happen. There's no way Babylon could come and take us because look, the temple of the Lord. Why does it matter if I go to the high place, Jeremiah? The temple of the Lord's there. I'm I'm okay. And and that kind of... I'm a good person. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, could you be a little... Uh, it, you know, you, you, were, you were saying some of the things. How does this sort of thinking still infect us as Christians today? Can you give us some, some examples? Well, there's the... There's the um, 
goodness gracious, there are, there are several examples. There's the, there's the Christian patriotic movement, the notion, the idea that that because America is somehow blessed by God and Christ looked favorably upon America, that that makes America a good place morally, which which is certainly not true. There that that isn't the case. There are certain Christian underpinnings in our nation. But the nation itself isn't somehow sanctified differently than other nations are. Um, and that's kind of an example of that. And that, and those moral currents that happen within Christianity, moralistic currents, I should say, that kind of, that kind of stuff affects the way that we interact with society around us. And we look at certain things as good and certain things as bad. Um, it's good for us to, uh, to be involved in, in, a, in the community doing service to our neighbor. Um, However, sometimes we make that an idol to itself and uh, and and heaven forbid we buy liquor on Sunday because that's a sin before God. And these things are not necessarily connected to the word of God. They are peripheral and they've become central to themselves, even though they're not part of the actual expression of Christianity and the word of God. That's an example. Another example we're seeing sort of played out right now is is the notion that uh, the people of Israel, modern people of Israel, are somehow tied into the covenant apart from Christ. And that God is looking to uh, do something with that piece of dirt over there that he handed over to the Babylonians thousands of years ago. Another one that, that comes to my mind is in terms of people within the church would be this this idea that sometimes, you know, a family who perhaps has not been very faithful in their attendance at worship, they have a child, they want desperately for that child to be baptized, or the grandparents want desperately for that child to be baptized, which certainly is a good desire to want to have your child baptized. If you have a child who's not baptized, go get that child baptized soon. But that treating of baptism that, okay, I'm going to go get my child baptized, but then I'm not going to come to church again as if I have no, you know, I, okay, I'm good. I got baptized. I, that's the, yeah. we treat it almost like to use the word you use a magic act. Yeah. Or a little talisman we place on the baby. Yeah. It seems very much like the attitude that's going on here. Certainly baptism saves. Yes. But it doesn't save apart from faith. If you don't trust the promise of God, what good is that baptism doing you? It, it, that seems to me another similar attitude to what's happening in Jeremiah's day. Sure. I could see a good parallel there too. And we see that uh, probably even more. So we see that with, uh, with confirmation hmm. where the, the graduation, it age, is that time of year. Yeah. The graduation age of Christians where in, in the eighth grade, you suddenly are, are intellectually and, and spiritually capable of understanding things you couldn't understand yesterday. And as you graduate from eighth grade into high school, we're also going to graduate you out of the church, which hmm is something we really don't want to do, but that's kind of what happens far too often. And, and it is this, this notion where folks who were not very regular attenders before suddenly for the two or three years of catechesis, they become very faithful in their attendance because, you know, you, you have to be in attendance to do sermon reports and whatnot and serve in, as an acolyte. So all these things suddenly happen more consistently. And then on the far side of that, something else happens. Hmm. And, and it is that same sort of idea that, that this, this one little mark we're putting tally sheets we're putting tallies on the sheet. We go, okay, we got baptized. Good. Okay. We've been confirmed. Yep. When we get married, we'll get married in the church. And those, those marks along the way are, are, are the, the measure of good enough. Is this adequate? Is this enough? Yeah, this should be enough. Okay. We're good. Right. And so, I mean, that's where the, the pastor stands in the doors of the church and, and tells the people walking in who are saying, 
I'm in the temple of the Lord. I'm in the house of God. I was baptized in this church, pastor. I was confirmed in this church, pastor. I was married in this church, pastor. Who are you to call me out for my sin, for my idolatry outside of church? I was here in the church of God. This sort of thinking can affect any one of us today where, again, the the idea is that we take these outward things and separate them from the word of God. And, and again, as we started off this conversation, this is why it's not as if the temple was unimportant. God wanted you to go to that building. The Lord wants you to come to public worship. He but wants be, you. But because his gifts are there. Exactly. Exactly. That's why he wants you in the temple. That's why he wants you in worship on Sunday, because he has some really amazing stuff to deliver to you in that place. And by way of his word there. It isn't the place that's awesome. It's the gift that's worth coming to receive. That's right. One, one time I, I put it, tell me what you think of this. I, I put it this way once that if God's not going to love you more, if you go to church on Sunday, if you want to hear good, good news like that, you should go to church on Sunday. <laughs> I don't, I, I, I hope that's helpful that, you know, to, to the idea is that it's not about my doing of the act that somehow makes me better in God's sight, but by actually doing that thing, by going to church, by being in public worship, I'm going to receive that good news. And it is that good news. That's what I need. Well, and God is actually making you better. It's not the doing of the thing that makes you better. It's receiving the gifts of God, the forgiveness of sins, life and salvation. That does make you better. It does turn us into more Christians yesterday, yesterday than today. And the funny thing is we will never perceive that because we'll only become more aware of our sin day by day, but the Lord is making you more holy anyway. Yeah, it, I mean, it, it comes back to what gifts does God want you to have? Go to receive those gifts, not to do something for your performance. The people are taking false comfort in their performance in this outward thing. They've separated from the word of God. Uh, one more thing before we, we go to the break here. It just this sermon, and I think you used the word mantra earlier, it is almost hypnotic in the way that it comes. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the, as if if I repeat it enough, then it must be true. And it, it kind of, you know, it, it lulls you to sleep. Ah, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. And I, I don't think it's an accident that Jeremiah here in his preaching repeats it three times, almost like an anti-trinity. Yeah, and he encourage, it encourages distraction. Instead of instead of having having uh, a text or a statement or a thing that attends us to the word of God and, and feeds us with God's word and what it says um, in in thinking about it in, in musical terms in the church, when we sing the hymnody of the church, we preach to one another and we teach each other the faith in the singing of the hymns, in the singing of God's word to one another. When there is this mindless, repetitive um, phraseology that's just a phrase, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. We can put it to a catchy tune if we want, but it still has that same level of mindlessness and it isn't really tied to the word of God and it doesn't actually teach a thing. And it encourages us to not be attentive to the word of God. Hmm. Yeah. And God wants us to attend to his word. That's why he wants us in public worship, not as an outward thing, but in order to give us his gifts, which is what we're receiving here on Sharper Iron this morning in Jeremiah chapter seven. We need to take a short break looking at Jeremiah seven here on KFUO with Pastor Jason Casper. We'll be right back. Please stick around.
the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, on behalf of Concordia Plan Services, Lutheran Housing Support Corporation, Concordia University System, Lutheran Church Extension Fund, the LCMS Foundation, and Corporate Synod, daily reaches out to our members and partners, working together to support our local, global, and international ministries, church workers, and LCMS initiatives at large to carry the mission forward and to serve each other in love. Opportunities to serve, lcms.org slash careers. The USA is the third largest mission field in the world, and church planning is one of the most effective means of making new disciples. New missions to new people in new places. Get ready to plow the fields. Check out the Mission Field USA podcast produced by the LCMS Office of National Mission. You can find it at kfuo.org or anywhere you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Tuesday, May 25th. We're studying Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 1 to 20 with Pastor Jason Casper. He serves at Mount Calvary Lutheran Church in LaGrange, Texas. Pastor Casper, we left off with that false deceptive sermon from the false preachers, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Jeremiah then continues by calling the people to a true repentance, one that does not place a false hope in a building, but one that looks to the word of the Lord. And so he he speaks in verses five and following about actually doing something about the way they live. I think you you put it that way earlier, you know, that, oh, I can just be a, a faithful Israelite one day a week when I go to the temple. What happens everywhere else? That's my own my own business. Jeremiah calls them to amend their ways and deeds. He mentions a, a few specific things. He talks about executing justice not oppressing the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow, not shedding innocent blood in this place, not going after other gods. What kind of, what is Jeremiah urging the people to? Go look at the law of God, which you already know, and go consult what you, how you're to conduct yourself. This, this is your, this is your catechetical instruction in the way, in the form of the sermon. Consider the, the Ten Commandments and your place in, relative, in relation to God relative to them and decide whether or not you're a sinner. The answer to that question is you're a sinner because the Ten Commandments lay out a life that you haven't lived. You're, you're, you're failing in your task. Um, it, and it, it starts out with, this, with this, this beautiful word, a pleading word. Amend your ways and your deeds. So you, you, we, I'm going to talk about what you've done wrong. Just stop. Don't do this. Turn away from that. Go any direction other than where you've been going, because where you've been going, it leads to destruction. It leads to the end. And that's that. That's the whole that's the whole life of, of, of the people of Israel. They've they've got this structure that's been laid out to them and how they're to interact with the folks around them, the widow and the fatherless and the sojourner and executing justice. Um, uh, justice, by the way, doesn't is a word that doesn't get a modifier. It only is justice and can't be a different kind of justice. But the justice does not look with preference to the weak and the and the and the mighty. It doesn't look with preference to the wealthy and the poor. It looks equally on everyone, and that's what justice looks like. It has to actually have this. The, we we in 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 modern culture we we depict justice with a blindfold because she can't see who she's judging. That's that's how justice is supposed to be working out. Um, the widow and the fatherless, the sojourner, man, there's, there's so much in Deuteronomy about how you're supposed to conduct yourself as a Jew outside of the temple in the way that you glean your fields, in the way that you harvest your grapes, in the way that you, you pick, you pick up all of your various 
sundry items in life you're supposed to leave. This is this is actually where we find the the whole story of Ruth gleaning in the fields of Boaz. The gleaning is is how the the poor and the and the indigent are able to survive. When you when you reap your fields, you're to leave the corners there so that someone can come behind and reap that and and get enough food to survive to to make to make make themselves and, and find sustenance there. And when it falls, curious how that goes. You're to leave the corners there. When you pick up the wheat, if it falls, you have to leave it on the ground. Mm-hmm. Again, because there are people who cannot eat and this is their food. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that word justice, we've talked about it a couple times because it does show up in Jeremiah. And it's a key word in the prophets that we, we always have to let God define that term for us. And and to be just is to, as you said, to actually listen to the, the word of God. That's that's where justice is defined for us, not a, a definition that we bring to it ourselves or that the world fills it with. But let God fill that. And he does here. And I appreciate what you said, you know, about go go actually take a look at the law of God, thinking about Jeremiah's context, beginning his ministry during the reign of King Josiah and all of the reforms that Josiah accomplished during his reign as king, which were good reforms, no doubt, to bring back proper worship in the temple, to bring back the celebration of the Passover. All of those were very good. But you can you can hear how Jeremiah fits perfectly in that context particularly after Josiah dies and things just revert back to the way they were, that Jeremiah is saying, okay, you, you did these things under Josiah. Great. You found that book of the law. Now turn, wait, no, don't read it. Don't turn away again. <laughs> That's right. And, and read it, read it. Don't, don't just apply it to what happens in this building, but actually make use of it in all of these good things that God gives you in, in your life. You know, this matter of justice, taking care of the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow, not shed, shedding innocent blood, not going after other gods. And I love the way that he, he preaches there in verse six. Do not go after other gods to your own harm. Idolatry actually hurts us. We don't think it will, but it actually hurts us. When God gives us his word, he does so for our good. Yeah. And who's and who's harmed by our sin? It's not it's not God. It's us. Just like who is benefited by our worship of the one true God. Also not God. Right. It's actually us. All the things that God gives us are for our benefit. We're, we're to be turned from sin because sin hurts us. And we're to be turned to righteousness because righteousness benefits us. And we're to be forgiven of sin because being forgiven puts us into, into a right state with God. And we maybe, we maybe enter into everlasting life because of that. All the stuff that God gives us is, is for our good and for our benefit. It doesn't hurt God. Hmm. In, in verse seven, you get another matter of, of hope, right? The Lord says, if you do this, then I will let you dwell in this place. That, that there is this expectation, perhaps even, we could use that strong of a word, that the people will repent, that they will continue to dwell in the land. And this, I, I think, is, is worth at least a, a minute or two to talk about. Well, land, Jer- and the land I gave to your fathers. Sure. And then he says, into your fathers forever. That, that there is this, you know, we were talking about the temple, the Lord, temple, Lord, they're putting this false trust in the fact they've got the temple and also a false trust that they're in this land. Mm-hmm. This does become a, a problem for the people of Israel that I think sometimes we fail to understand, particularly when they go into exile. How can God be God when, when we're not in the land? And I think that is one of the questions that maybe Jeremiah doesn't deal with in this text, but he is at pains to answer elsewhere that even apart from this building, the temple, even apart from this land that gets handed over to the Babylonians, mm-hmm. God does remain God and he does keep his promises. 
Yeah. And he, he's, he doesn't intend it all. Part of it all goes back to what God's intention is for us. He has no intention to cast the people out of the land. He doesn't want to cast the people out of the land. God doesn't want anyone to fall into sin. God does not want anyone to fall prey to the enemy and land themselves in eternal damnation. Um, but if we want it and we want it badly enough, he, he'll allow us to have it. And that's, that's, that's one of the, the grim realities of, of living in a life that in a world that is corrupted by sin, we can choose to have sin if that's what we want. And the people of Israel are constantly butting heads with the prophets, Jeremiah in this case, and all the ones before and after who try to turn them from their sin. Stop doing this. Turn away from the sin that you're in. Go instead to where the Lord wants you. And this promise from God to Abraham and to our fathers and this land that was given, all of it is a, is a, is a promise forever if you'll not turn away from it. And, and they are, they continually do turn away, but the Lord doesn't want that. He want, he desperately wants them to be in his covenant and stay there forever. And that's, that, that is, uh, that, that is both the, the glory of what we find here in, in Jeremiah and the travesty. And the, the glory of it all is that, that we're going to hear in a second about Ephraim and being cut off in the North, the, 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 the promise and the covenant of, of God with his people remains with Judah but it keeps getting narrowed down, remains with Judah, remains with the house of David, remains with the, the remnant that's going to be in exile and return. And eventually it's going to boil down to just the person and the work of Jesus Christ and no one else. And him alone on the cross, dying a death to destroy death and destroy sin. Hmm. That's where it's coming. Hmm. Very good. Very good. Now, Jeremiah keeps preaching and we've touched on some of these things already, Pastor Casper, in, in verses eight and following. Jeremiah reminds the people that this sermon from the false prophets is no good. It's deceptive. It won't do any good. And then he, he calls out specifically what they're doing. And I think this is worth pointing out again. I, I think this comes up several times in the book of Jeremiah. The idolatry that happens is usually not a complete replacement of Yahweh. It usually gets it's a parallel. That's thing, right. Yeah. It's Jesus plus. I, I want to worship Jesus plus other things. I want to have Jesus and then do whatever else I want. And the list of sins that, that he gives in verse nine, I, I wrote down, let's say they're breaking the seventh commandment, the fifth commandment, the sixth commandment, probably the eighth and the second, the third, and ultimately the first commandment. Yep. They're doing all of this. And then they want to come to, to use colloquial. They want to come to church on Sunday and say, we're great. And then just keep on living and worshiping in idolatry the way they've always been. What does Luther say? Like a dog returns to his own vomit. Like St. Peter said that. And Saint so Peter did Solomon said. in the Pro Proverbs. Sorry, a drunk peasant <laughs> falling off the other side of the road. That's there the one go. I'm looking for. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's and And that is, that, that is where the people dwell. They, they, they dwell in this land and in this practice. And I was, I was thinking in our, our previous section just a moment ago, that, that the people of Israel are like a, are, are like a flood that's coming downstream or they're like a spring that's coiled up tightly. And the faithful king redirects them. Josiah direct, redirects them to, to the temple of the Lord again, but they're ready to snap back into idolatry. And as soon as he's gone, they do. Mm. And that's exactly where they head. They go right back into this, uh, this unfaithfulness because it's, it's baked into the pudding. Mm. They've, they've been polytheists for so long that it's unnatural for them to try to conform themselves to a monotheistic faith where there is only the one true God and nothing else. And they and their parents and their children and their grandparents, none of them can, 
can get themselves unplugged from this idea that we can be we can be followers of Yahweh and other stuff at the same time. And that's okay. It will be all right. And the things that are going on in the high places are horrifying. Not just to the not not just to the to to the the notion of what it means to be a Jew, but in reality, if you look just just look pragmatically at what they're doing, sacrificing children on altars, engaging in, in cult temple prostitutes, and all of the stuff that's happening in these high places, this is really bad stuff. This is wickedness to a degree that we would be horrified by in our modern wicked age. Mm. And somehow that's that's okay. We're being delivered. Mm. It's all cool. Right. I think, I mean, as I was reflecting on, on these particular verses, when I teach confirmands and catechumens to examine themselves prior to receiving the sacrament, one of the questions I teach them to ask themselves is, you know, do I intend with God's help to amend my sinful life? And that's precisely what is not happening in the day of Jeremiah. And and you see in, in this text from Jeremiah why it is such an important ask of ourselves when we examine ourselves. Do I intend to look at my life, see all these sins that I have been committing, struggling with it? If I want strength for them, then yes, the sacrament is for me. But if I have no intention of stopping, if I think, oh, that, that's fine, I'm just going to do those things and then be delivered on Sunday, to use Pauline language, I'm going to go on sinning so that grace may abound. Paul has a pretty strong word for that, by no means. Yeah, indeed. And that, and that does, it does cut us off. In, in reveling in our sin, and that really is where that it, where that's getting, reveling in our sin and then returning to this, this fount of forgiveness. The, the forgiven child of God doesn't, doesn't want to sin. The forgiven child of God, God does, but the intention of the desire and the inclination of a heart changes and it, it is moved in a different way. And instead of running directly into sin, we find ourselves falling nonetheless. It, it's, it's, it's kind of a little, a little bit of a nuance and understanding, but, but inside, inside the hearts and minds of Christians, you can see this in yourself. When, when the direction of your life is changed and compelled to the righteousness of God and turned away from sin, it, it, it is motivated in a different way. And it is very different than that heart that, that says, whoo-hoo, punched that one off the list. We're good. God forgiven. And here we go right back into that sin because... Gosh, you know, I kind of like that mistress on the side. Mm, yeah, yeah. I mean, again, Jeremiah's words preach to us still today. It's quite quite something. In verse 11, I just want to briefly point out, Jesus quotes from this when he's cleansing the temple. And I think we can even see in this whole event in Jeremiah 7, a precursor, a foreshadow of what Jesus does when he cleanses the temple in the Gospels. Just to make sure we get through the, the whole text this morning, because we haven't even read the last several verses. <laughs> in verses 12 and following, Jeremiah, the Lord gives Jeremiah this word and he invites the people to go to Shiloh. And he says, if, if you think I'm not going to forsake this temple, then just check out what I did in Shiloh. Can you give us the Old Testament background? What's the Lord inviting his people to see? Yeah, so Shiloh was the was the original location of the of the tabernacle in in uh, Israel, and so it, it dwelled there for quite a long time, and then it fell into disrepair and unfaithfulness. It was eventually overthrown by the Philistines, became a place of desolation, and was destroyed. And when we finally do recover the Ark of the Covenant, we finally do bring everything back to Jerusalem under King David. Now it can't go to Shiloh anymore. Because Shiloh has become this this place of destruction and desolation, it is no longer fit for the people of Israel or for the house of the Lord. It can't be there anymore, and that's that's what he's pointing to. Look down the road, because this is not real far away either. 
This is real close by. You look over there at Shiloh and you can see what destruction looks like when we are unfaithful with the gifts of God and when we make a mockery of the Lord's house. Shiloh is what happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, if you want to read more on that, first Samuel chapter four is the account to really take a look at. And you can see there the way that Eli's sons use the Ark of the Covenant almost like, a, again, a magic talisman, a magic charm type of object. And the Lord's judgment on that is is quite swift. Psalm 78, just as another reference, puts this in a poetic form as to the judgment that happened at Shiloh. And so the, the Lord says to his people, look, I've done this before. I moved the place where my name was. I can do it again based on your unfaithfulness. He also invites them in verse 15 to take a look once more at the northern kingdom. Remember what happened to your, as, as he said in chapter three, your big sister Israel. Look at what happened to her. It can happen to you as well. Yeah, this is this is this is all the destruction, and and it's not just it's not just your big sister Israel. It's also that their temples there too, mm. which these folks may not have really understood what was wrong with those temples in the north, right? Because they're not exactly very faithful in their practice of Judaism at this point. So. Look over at Shiloh, see the destruction that was wrought there at the hands of the Philistines. Look up to the north. You see those two temples up there. Look at the destruction that was wrought there. This is this is what's coming for all of us. And yeah, yeah Psalm 78, for, for they provoked him to anger with their high places and they moved him to jealousy with their idols. When, when God heard, he was full of wrath and he utterly rejected Israel. He forsook his dwelling at Shiloh, the tent where he dwelt among mankind and delivered his power to captivity, his glory to the hand of the foe. Hmm. Yeah, and, and that's, that's what Jeremiah calls the people to take a look at, in, again, in an effort to call them to repentance. We've got a few more verses for our text this morning. Again, we're in Jeremiah 7. We're going to cover as well verses 16 to 20. So on, on the heels of this temple sermon, the Lord tells Jeremiah this. As for you, do not pray for this people or lift up a cry or prayer for them and do not intercede with me for I will not hear you. Do you not see what they are doing in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood, the fathers kindle fire and the women knead dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven. And they pour out drink offerings to other gods to provoke me to anger. Is it I whom they provoke, declares the Lord? Is it not themselves to their own shame? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, my anger and my wrath will be poured out on this place, upon man and beast, upon the trees of the field and the fruit of the ground. It will burn and not be quenched. That's the rest of our text for today. That was all the way through Jeremiah 7, verse 20. There's some harsh some harsh, harsh words. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. One of those texts that it's, we maybe say that with a bit of shakiness in our voice, but it is the word of the Lord. And, well, we, do. and we ought to. So let, let's go backwards in that a little bit. So the, the, the judgment that's coming is not just on the people of Israel. It's not just on the temple. The ground itself is going to be cursed. The, the cattle, everything is going to become a wasteland because of what you were doing. Turn away from that sin. Remember back when we had in verse seven, I think it was turn away from your sin. And and if you relent, this isn't going to come to pass. Here's how bad it's going to be. It's not just that the temple is going to be destroyed. It's not just that you're going to be cast out of the land. The land itself is going to be cursed because of the, the wickedness that you, that you are doing here. Mm. And with that, with that 
preaching from Jeremiah, the stage is certainly set for a lot of those, but maybe we're more familiar with some of the gospel images of restoring the wilderness from say the prophet Isaiah, but that's, this is the background of it. And I, I mean, as you're talking about the, the actual cursing of the ground, that I think that takes us all the way back to Genesis chapter three, that the sin of Adam and Eve, what happened? The Lord actually cursed the ground. The ground the way, itself, yeah. The way Paul talks in Romans chapter eight about the creation groaning, waiting for the redemption because this creation experiences the effects of our sin as well. And certainly that is, that is true of what happens when the Lord brings judgment against Jerusalem and Judah in the, the 500s BC. Indeed. So, and backing up a little more, Keep going. We're, we're getting into this thing that looks righteous. It looks like faithfulness. What does it look like more so than a household engaged in household tasks in the right order and in the right way? Everybody's engaged in their job, in their own unique role in the household, but we're all going to go serve the bales with it. That's what we're doing. We're pouring out drink offerings. We're kneading dough to make cakes. We're gathering wood to kindle fire. Everybody has their own task and they're carrying on and going about in a morally, uh, a morally righteous way that looks good from the outside. It looks as if these are faithful people doing faithful things that they're doing for abominations before the before the Lord God. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's it, idol verse 18. Idolatry has become the family pastime, it seems. But but as you said, it looks it, you know, it looks like it looks wholesome. A, a it's, happy it's a, it's family. A, it's a 1950s suburban household right. going to serve Molech. That's right. That's yes, that's right. The kids are gathering wood. The father's building the fire. The the mom is is cooking supper. What a what a beautiful picture. But they're all doing it in service to an idol, which I mean, it is. It's very striking that that picture of outward piety on the one hand, but just the utter depravity on the other hand that they're baking these cakes for the queen of heaven. It's, it's a terrible picture. And again, when you put it that way, you can see why the Lord is so harsh against the people. So harsh. In fact, that he, he gives Jeremiah what seems an unspeakable thing. He tells Jeremiah, don't bother to pray for these people. Cause I'm not going to listen anyway. What do we do with, with these words from the Lord? Yeah. Curious there. Let me, let me come back to that one. Um, the other thing there is this reflection second use of the law stuff, we should not miss our own reflection in this activity and in this text. In our society, we should absolutely see that though our gods don't have names, we have pagan gods in our society, and we build ourselves in seemingly righteous ways in our families and in our cultures, pursuing the acts of these pagan gods nameless pagan gods, but our society where we pursue athletics and education and, and community service and all sorts of other things that are not God, but they look right. And that, that then becomes a God into and of itself for us. And the don't pray for them. Yeah. Um, well, let, let's back up and see who, who also doesn't pray for the people. When, when Abraham is pleading for the Lord before for Sodom and Gomorrah to spare his, his, his nephew lot, the Lord doesn't, the Lord is not going to relent. And yet Abraham pleads when Moses goes with the people of Israel and he pleads for them again and again, laying prostrate before the Lord, who is going to destroy them after building a, a golden calf at the, the foot of Sinai. He does not relent. And then we're going to find the same thing here with Jeremiah. The Lord tells him not to pray for them, but Jeremiah does. And that's that's the work of the prophet to always intercede for the people. And that's that's where that's really where the prophets 
Jeremiah in this case and, and all the other prophets too are providing for us a, a little small type of the Christ who's to come. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the propitiation for our sins. He's the one who is continually and steadily pleading our case and advocating with the Father for us in the way that the prophets do, only in his case it actually works and it actually assuages sin and it actually makes our prayers rise before the Lord as incense. Mm, yeah, I mean, I think a command like this from the Lord is another one of those wake-up calls to Get the people of Judah to recognize just how serious this matter is, what is coming, and yeah. to recognize that there is a time when grace comes to an end. You think of the the parable that Jesus tells of the the man who, who has this fig tree that not grown any fruit, and and the the one comes along and says, "Let me let me go around it for another year, and let's let's wait it out." It, I mean, let's. But the time still comes a year later, and I, I think you see a, a picture of that here in Jeremiah. Thanks be to God that Jeremiah was faithful in his praying for the people and for his continued preaching to the people, so that they would repent. But the reality was, judgment was going to come. There would come a day when Babylon's army was going to show up on the doorstep and it was too late. And, and Jeremiah is calling them to repent now before it is too late. Pastor Casper, we've got two minutes here on the morning. Final thoughts on this text. And how do we look at a text like this and, and see Christ for us? The covenant. Look into the covenant and man, oh man, do you ever find it there? This this is this is like when when we hear those incredibly law passages in the gospel and we forget that Jesus Christ was crucified for sin. It doesn't end until it's over. Jeremiah isn't done until he gives this promise of the restoration of Israel at the conclusion of his prophecy. It is going to be restored. Not all of Israel, not in the same way. The remnant is going to be restored, and it all is coming to fruition in the deliverance of people from sin by God. He's coming to deliver his people, and it goes back to the Genesis 3 promise. The seed of the woman is going to be the one that, that bruises the serpent's head. This is the way the covenant works when it is when it is cut between Abraham and God, when, when Abraham splits the carcasses of the animals and God passes through by himself. There is no threat against Abraham. The threat is against God in that covenant. At the Noahic covenant, after the flood, when the Lord puts his bow in the sky and points the pointy end towards himself, I'm the one that's going to suffer because of your sin. Never again will I destroy the world. And in fact, I'll destroy my son to set aside your sin. That's how we should view Jeremiah. That's how we should view this prophecy and the destruction of Israel and the exile. It's all happening to bring about the salvation of mankind. The promise of God is indeed coming into, into fruition in, in, in due time and in due course and in the right moment of history when God produces forth his son for the salvation of all mankind. It all comes because of what's happening through Israel. Without Israel, that doesn't actually come to us. God keeps his covenant and maintains his promise to this ever-dwindling number of people all the way through the history of Israel. Mm. Pastor Jason Casper is the pastor at Mount Calvary Lutheran Church in LaGrange, Texas, helping us today with Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 1 to 20. Pastor Casper, thanks for being our guest today. Thanks, Pastor Apple. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about the book of Jeremiah, comments on this series, please get in touch with us. Send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or download the KFUO app and use the open mic feature to send up to a 60-second message to us. Love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.